You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Lauren, and on behalf of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, I'm happy to welcome you to today's roundtable tackling online hate against religious minorities. Uh, Many thanks to the Department of Canadian Heritage for funding the Digital Peace Project, which seeks to contribute to national and international efforts to combat online hate and incitement to violence, building off the UN strategy and plan of action on hate speech. Without further ado, I'd like to pass it over to our moderator, Akash Maharaj, who is an ambassador at large for the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption. Akash, over to you. Thank you very much, Lauren. And thank you to Migs for organizing today's conference and for starting almost unnaturally on time. You're very punctual. Um, although we cannot see the audience directly, hello to everyone who has taken the time to join us and to be part of this conversation. Today, we will be discussing tackling online hate against religious minorities. I think all of us who are, of course, participating in an online exercise now recognizes the power of online communications and in particular social media to bring people together across vast distances and to assemble communities of interest that might otherwise be isolated from one another. The rise of online communications has been one of the great advances in the human condition. Equally though, that power has, just as it has served the higher ambitions of the human race, also served the lower impulses. We have seen online communications being used as a way to foment hatred, animus, fear, and adverse, indeed violence, against minorities of all kinds. We're here to discuss how that dynamic particularly affects religious communities. How has online hatred manifested itself against religious communities? What are our responsibilities as Canadians and as participants in social media to combat it? What does the future hold? And is this a good thing or a bad thing? What, how are we likely to develop as a society and as a world and has online, the, the rise of online hatred against religious minorities, is it a product of social media and online communications? Or is it merely that social media and online communications have revealed dynamics that were already percolating under the surface in our own societies? To discuss these and other questions, we have a highly stellar panel who have joined us today, and we are grateful to all of them for setting aside some of their time to share their insights and wisdom with us. We are joined by Emmanuel Amar, Director of Policy and Research for Quebec for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, by Amira El-Gawabi, Canada's Special Representative on Combating Islamophobia, by Louis Odet Goslin, the Scientific and Strategic Director at the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, and by Jennifer Trigel, a Senior Legal Advisor on Freedom of Religion or Belief and Equality Project at the University of Essex. Welcome to you all. We'll begin with Emmanuel Amar from CJA. Welcome to this discussion. Please begin by sharing your views with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for for this introduction and thank you for the opportunity to join this very important roundtable discussion uh, today. Um, My name uh, is Emmanuel. Uh, I'm a representing the perspective of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA. Um, CIJA is the advocacy agent of Jewish federations across Canada. 
Um, our mission is to preserve and protect the quality of Jewish life through advocacy. And we have been actively involved in combating online hate for close to a decade. Um, so we're always uh, very happy to be involved in uh, initiatives such like the one today and the global project. Um, let me start by perhaps giving some numbers to put things uh, into perspective with regards to what we're uh, facing in terms of um, uh, challenges uh, and hate uh, towards our community, um, and which a lot of it also happens online. Um, the Jewish community represents 1% of the Canadian population, uh, but is the target of 14% of hate crimes reported by police. And when we examine Statistics Canada data on police reported uh, hate crimes from past few years, um, we notice that the Jewish community is still the most targeted group for religiously motivated hate crimes. Uh, if we take the example of data from 2021, which is the uh, latest set of data available from StatCan, uh, Jews then accounted for 55% of all religiously motivated hate crimes uh, in Canada, right? So 1% of the population, 55% of all religiously motivated uh, hate crimes. Um, and if we look at online anti-Semitism, uh, it takes many forms, uh, including Holocaust denial, promotion of stereotypes and tropes, uh, promotion of contemporary Jew hatred. Um, if um, we go a uh, quick search online on all these platforms, um, the post and the nature of the post uh, that we can see um, is quite scary. Um, and we know firsthand that online harms has real world consequences, uh, bullying, exclusion and discrimination of individuals and attacks on community and religious institutions. Um, we have definitely seen an increase in the last few years of anti-Semitic and hateful content online. Um, I'll just give a quick um, uh, attention to a report uh, from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which found that on average, 84% of reported anti-Semitic social media posts on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube did not generate responses from the platform. Uh, however, the, the posts for that study, they studied 700 social media posts. Uh, these posts were viewed 7.3 million times. Um, so the magnitude of these numbers are scary uh, because we know um, that they can have very severe impact on vulnerable individuals that might be viewing them and getting radicalized uh, online. Um, and then they fall into a rabbit hole, uh, specifically when we know that online violence can lead to offline violence. Um, and I'll just say a few words on um, conspiracy theories, because we find a lot of those online and there's a direct link with conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism. Um, and I think it's very central to, to um, part of, of the team of today. Um, we'll notice a persistence of uh, anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories related to the myth of global Jewish conspiracy or Jews controlling the media, the economy, the government or other institutions. Or you might have heard of the Great Replacement uh, conspiracy theory, which is also rooted in anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, and anti-Semitism is present in all extremist political groups from far right to far left. Uh, 
but often using anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, radicalized groups are therefore not the only source of anti-Semitism, but they are a great concern to Jews in Canada because uh, these groups promote ideologies that then turn rhetorical hatred into active violence. Um, a special attention must really be given to uh, the spread of hateful radical content. Um, and, and that's why it's crucial to to that we get together uh, and, and find solution to, uh, to combat online hate against minorities because we know that it fuels violence in the real world, right? As evidenced by killings uh, at the synagogues in Pittsburgh and San Diego, uh, at a rabbi's, a rabbi's house in Monse, a kosher grocery store in uh, Jersey City, at mosques in Quebec City and Christchurch, uh, or even the ram truck attack in 2018 targeting women in Toronto. Um, that, that was uh, uh, fueled by online radicalization. Um, and so uh, anti-Semitic misinformation is not just a problem for the Jewish community. Uh, once allowed to take root, there's severe and terrifying uh, predictors of great challenges that lie ahead for the entire society. Um, and that's why as an at-risk group, uh, the Jewish community works with other at-risk communities because we know that hate impacts us all. Uh, and to fight one form of bigotry, we must fight all forms of bigotry. Um, and I believe that we'll have a chance to develop on recommendations in the discussion portion of this event. Uh, but let me just say very quickly uh, that one key element is to ensure that we have Canadian legislation and regulations that compel social media companies to address online harms. And the rise of online harms is a serious concern and also the protection of freedom of expression. And that's a cornerstone of, a cornerstone of Canadian democracy. And we believe we can have legislation that acts as a shield against the dangers of online hate while strongly protecting the right of freedom of expression. And lastly, uh, and I will stop at that after I promise, so we have time for uh, other uh, panelists, um, that I will mention that a crucial component is education. Uh, and it's important to combat the toxic content circulating online um, because that's a phenomenon that particularly affects young people. And so government digital literacy campaigns to educate and raise awareness among Canadians about the power of social media and the role they play in destructive behavior uh, are really, really key. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Emmanuel. And I apologize in my introductions, my eyes skipped over Wendy Veer, co-founder and president of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, who is also with us. My apologies, Wendy. Our next speaker is Amira Elgawabi. Please go ahead, Amira. Thank you so much, Akash. Uh, and thanks to all my fellow panelists for uh, being here today on such an important conversation. Um, so I guess where I would start is uh, to, to talk about uh, the upcoming anniversary uh, of the tragic killing of the Afzal family, which is next week on June 6th. And so, as many of you know, uh, about two years ago, um, an individual who had consumed um, online hate where police had found um, on his laptop um, ways to access the deep web. Um, and that means he was able to access all sorts of extremist websites, etc. Um, an individual consumed with that type of hatred um, attacked a family that was out, you know, out for a walk in their neighborhood, um, identified them as Muslim and killed them. And so uh, we remember them. We, um, we 
recognize that they were killed simply because they were Muslim. And as, again, all of us are very well, well aware, this was not the first such attack uh, in Canada against Muslims. Uh, we had, as Emmanuel mentioned, uh, the attack on January 29th at the Quebec City Mosque, where six worshippers were killed, again, by an individual that evidence showed had also been consuming online hate and rhetoric uh, that drove him to attack Muslims having been demonized uh, in his mind. Um, and in between that, there was another attack actually in a Toronto mosque that fewer people are aware of, but was also by an individual who um, had had uh, dealings and associations with groups that were affiliated with uh, neo-Nazi and satanic groups. So in Canada, uh, we have a very um, unfortunate distinction of being uh, the the top G7 countries with the highest number of deadly attacks uh, against Muslims. And again, that's driven by the online space. And so uh, this topic is very important because we certainly see that uh, across the board, across various visible minority communities, racialized women, uh, etc., that we are very much aware and cognizant of spaces that are allowing for hate speech, allowing for uh, the demonization of various communities, uh, including uh, Canadian Muslims uh, online. Um, and so one of the things that Emmanuel touched on that I think is also really important for us and, and as we get into the discussion today is the ways in which this hate um, sort of cross-references different types of ideologies to target various communities. And so we heard, for instance, about um, the attack in 2019 on a on a synagogue in California. Well, the 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 killer and the shooter in that attack had been inspired by the Christchurch shooter who had attacked two mosques in New Zealand just before that. So you see how attacks on religious minorities, um, whether it's one or, or more communities, that the ideologies that feed this type of divisive divisiveness that leads and can lead to deadly consequences. Um, is very significant and, and very much why communities must come together to talk about this. In Canada, we've seen a rise in hate crimes targeting uh, Muslims from 2021, uh, 2020, 2021. It's been 72% increase in hate crimes. And that's only a tip of the iceberg, as many know, because up to two thirds of hate crimes are not even reported to police. So the reason it's important though, to nevertheless track what's going on in real life, quote unquote, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, is certainly what we continue to see is the demonizing narratives that are happening online um, do have that spillover effect into uh, our communities. And we actually saw that probably on the on the largest level during a few years ago when there was a debate, a political debate about a motion called Motion 103 that attempted to uh, tackle and address and examine not only Islamophobia, but other forms of religious discrimination that was politicized, that was used uh, by various far-right groups to organize anti-Muslim rallies right across the country. And many of these groups have, you know, since um, pulled on to other types of uh, various ideologies and, and have, you know, latched on to COVID conspiracies and all sorts of other conspiracies. And so, as I mentioned, you have this sort of toxic stew of ideologies and narratives that pull people into these spaces and eventually potentially lead to the undermining of our social cohesion and our democratic rights and freedoms. Um, and 
of course, we also see a disproportionate impact on women, on, I mentioned that, racialized women, including Muslim women, um, who, when it comes to Islamophobic hate crimes, are often the most visible and therefore the most targeted. Um, and also within some of the um, ideologies that are shared, we do see, again, a gendered aspect of the types of online narratives that are shared. Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Canada, unfortunately, has been seen as one of the top exporters of online hate pages. So in a report from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in the UK had at one point a few years ago identified 6,600 online pages um, or accounts or groups in Canada that were spreading white supremacist or misogynistic views. And on a per capita basis, Canada at that time was shown to be one of the most active countries in the world when it came to spreading these types of views. And so just that's sort of my opening to say that we certainly must not be complacent in Canada. Online hate has already led to deadly violence. Um, the attack on the Quebec City Mosque was the first such deadly attack, hopefully the last, on a place of worship in this country. Um, and certainly our communities, especially as we come now to the second anniversary of the June 6th attack, um, are constantly concerned about this phenomenon and join with other communities to work together to find solutions and to call for uh, legislative change. Thank you, Amira. We'll now move on to Louis Ode goslin Thank you, Akash. Um, the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence has a mandate of preventing radicalization, but also hate-motivated behavior uh, across Quebec. Uh, in keeping with that mandate, uh, in 2021, we published a research report based on a survey uh, that tried to measure uh, the extent of uh, hate-motivated behavior uh, in Quebec. Uh, so to measure uh, what were the main motives, who were the main targets, uh, and so forth. Uh, one of our findings uh, was that being part of a religious minority uh, increases your risk of uh, uh, being subjected to uh, hate-motivated acts uh, by uh, over, it's, it's, have over uh, two times more uh, chance to, to of being uh, a victim. Uh, this is probably an understatement uh, since uh, our definition of religious minority were uh, people uh, practicing a religion other than Catholic, uh, so that was in the Quebec context, uh, but half of that uh, of that uh, demographic was uh, Christian, uh, non-Catholic Christian, which in other parts of the country would not uh, be considered as a religious minority. So uh, my, my gut feeling is that uh, if we would uh, uh, target um, uh, Muslims or, or Jews or other uh, Muslim or other uh, religious minorities, uh, the risk would be uh, much higher. Uh, another finding is that uh, Religi religious motives uh, for hate-motivated uh, behavior uh, was uh, very prevalent online. Uh, that was uh, so something that came out uh, of the of the report. Uh, 
And another uh, disturbing element is that uh, victims and uh, and, and witnesses of uh, hate-motivated behavior uh, found that overall uh, online acts uh, were considered as more serious uh, than uh, those committed in other spaces, which is uh, at first glance uh, counterintuitive, um, but uh, might be connected to uh, all sorts of factors, uh, notably the level of violent discourse uh, that is uh, uh, incomparable to what we found uh, offline. Uh, also, uh, hate speech online tend to target whole communities instead of uh, specific people. Um, so the number of perpetrators uh, of uh, victims are, uh, are much larger. Um, which can be more uh, more stressful, which can lead to uh, a, a, an increased uh, feeling of uh, of insecurity uh, for members of uh, that communities uh, and so forth. So we we are not done uh, studying the impact of the online space and the online hate uh, on on our societies. Uh, I think uh, it is uh, something that is uh, very uh, very, very important to, to tackle in the future. So, um, several of our uh, findings uh, lead to renewed uh, action uh, on uh, tackling uh, hate-motivated behavior and especially online hate. Uh, first, Emmanuel uh, touched on, on that. There's certainly uh, something to be done on the, the regulation uh, uh, sphere, um, since uh, online hate is uh, really pervasive, really uh, invasive. Uh, you don't have to find to to search uh, very uh, very long to find Islamophobic uh, or uh, anti-Semitic comments. Um, and the impact is uh, the same, or uh, as I mentioned, sometimes considered um, more serious uh, than uh, offline uh, offline hate. Another uh, key element is uh, a call to uh, everyone who has a access to public speech uh, in the, in the country uh, to understand that uh, public debates most often lead to uh, uh, hate-motivated uh, acts uh, targeting uh, the communities that uh, are singled out uh, by, by these debates. So debate about immigration, about uh, the place of religion in the society, uh, um, about terrorism, about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, they tend to lead to uh, hate-motivated uh, acts against uh, religious and ethnic minorities here in Canada. So everyone who, with a, a public forum, uh, needs to be aware of that and to uh, place the debates in a broader context without singling out a specific uh, community. And third, and uh, I'll end up with that, um, Respondents to our survey um, seem to uh, not to know what to do with uh, with hate uh, hate acts, hate hate incidents, hate uh, crimes uh, that uh, both uh, victims and actors were very unsatisfied with 
what was available for them as a means to report or uh, as a means to find support um, for 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 them and their uh, their their close ones. Uh, so there is a an urgent need uh, to strengthen the reporting mechanism, uh, the connection between the religious minorities and police forces, uh, the confidence uh, link between uh, authorities, institutions, and uh, religious, religious minorities, and also to empower community sectors uh, that can also offer uh, a lot of service uh, to, to the, the victims and uh, the witness. So I'll, I'll end up with that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Louis. We now move on to Jennifer Trigan. Thank you so much, uh, both to Concordia and the Government of Canada for convening this timely and important discussion today. My name is Jennifer Trigel, and I work as a senior legal advisor to the uh, University of Essex in the Religion and Equality Unit. At the moment, we have a project on countering Islamophobia specifically. Uh, but before I came to Essex, I was the senior legal advisor to the then UN Special Rapporteur, Dr. Ahmed Shaheed. And during his mandate, he consistently mapped in all his reports concerns of the rise of online hate against different religious or belief communities, especially minorities around the world. Whilst hate directed against religious or belief minorities is an age-old problem, how it is experienced and manifested is very much shaped by online environments in the modern age. The rate and reach of hate in the online age is unprecedented with social media platforms and other digital platforms enabling people to spread it faster, uh, faster and further than ever before. But we all know today that online hate has very real-world implications. Discrimination, hostility, and violence directed against vulnerable communities, including religious or belief minorities. And these narratives of hate travel from online to offline contexts and vice versa. We must not forget the role of traditional media outlets, politicians, academics, and other prominent people within society in regularly regularly disseminating and reinforcing harmful stereotypes and tropes about different or different religious or belief systems and their adherence. One common theme is that these hateful narratives are both born from and tap into people's intolerance and fears, typically where they have no prior engagement or understanding of their affected community. It's often seen as a politically expedient tool to externalize a population's fears and anxieties onto vulnerable populations as a convenient scapegoat, whether they are religious or belief minorities, migrants, refugees, and others. I would also echo the concern over the rise of conspiracy theories on these platforms and the need to understand intersectional experiences of online hate, including religious or belief minorities, uh, people with different racial backgrounds, disability, gender, and so on. And if there are a number of factors that can compound and influence how someone experiences online hate, with women from religious or belief minorities 
typically experiencing uh, sexualized language and threats on these online platforms. Uh, I would also observe that with these online hateful narratives, there is typically an uptick in their prevalence around political events like elections, comments by public figures, and even attacks on the targeted communities themselves. However, within international human rights law, there are grounds for states to restrict the right to freedom of expression and freedom of religion or belief in a certain number of limited circumstances. Now, this has a high threshold so as to prevent the state from arbitrarily restricting these fundamental rights. Uh, limitations must be imposed for permissible reasons, clearly articulated in law, they must be necessary and the least intrusive measure possible to achieve the given aim. And they must be neither discriminatory nor harmful to enjoyment of the right themselves. And the grounds that they are restricted on uh, include public safety, order, health, and enjoyment of human rights. However, I note with concern that in several countries, policies that have been adopted uh, is justified in tackling online hate, have been used to stifle the freedom of expression of those who challenge certain interpretations of religion or belief systems that are used to uh, restrict human rights. We must remember that international human rights law protects individuals and not religions, but there are certain circumstances where criticisms of religions were done in such a way that uh, infringes upon individuals' rights may be subject to restrictions within international human rights law. And a particular instrument that is useful when considering when online hate becomes impermissible in human rights is the Rabat Plan of Action, which includes a six-part context-specific threshold test for establishing whether hateful expression should be considered to reach the level of incitement that must be prohibited by states. I'm going to briefly mention three solutions or avenues when it comes to online hate, and I'm happy to elaborate on them later. Firstly, the importance of developing counter speech and counter narratives, expressing solidarity with those who are affected. And here there is a role for states, including Canada, to signal to a community that they are both seen and that concerns are heard. For instance, in, in response to an attack on a religious site or discrimination that is prevalent within society. Secondly, allyship across different religious or belief communities, all communities, uh, communities of all faiths and none, working together to tackle the root causes of intolerance and hatred. The Faith for Rights framework within the UN system was specifically developed to look at how peer-to-peer -peer learning and engagement can try and bridge understanding and collaboration across different religious or belief communities. We need to engage diverse stakeholders as demonstrated by the other speakers on this call today. Parliamentarians, religious or belief leaders, educators, social media influencers, and so on, to try and 
move towards having systemic and societal change in order to tackle online hate effectively. And finally, I would uh, emphasize the importance of having accessible mechanisms for reporting and monitoring of online hate against religious or belief communities. There are, are, are a number of fantastic civil society organizations who are already doing important work within this space. And I encourage you to look into that work further and the, the state of Canada to look also at supporting them. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. And now on to Wendy Veer from the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Wendy? Um, I just want to thank everybody for having me today and to just really echo all that we've heard so far. It's so wonderful to see how many allies we have out there that recognize the problems that we're facing with um, religious discrimination in the online space. Um, I'm Wendy Vi. I'm the co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. We founded the project about three years ago after 20 years working in uh, the far-right extremism space in the United States. We work to counter white supremacy, xenophobia, anti-LGBTQ plus hate, anti-Semitism, religious discrimination, and gender bias online and offline, all of which expand the global far-right extremist agenda, which, as we know, is undermining democracies across the globe. We hope to fill a gap in understanding and combating extremism on a transnational level. While we focus on U.S.-based rights restricting activity that threatens the U.S. democracy, those same activities are exported to other countries and democracies across the world, being incorporated into uh, the mainstream discourse, often inspiring violence, including violence against people because of their religion or um, other motivations. At the Global Project, we use we have four buckets of work combating global extremism. We hold tech companies accountable. We try to influence policy, both domestically in the United States and internationally. And very importantly, we build transnational cross-sector coalitions to address this work. We cannot do it alone. Um, at the Global Project, we specifically believe that people are, it's not the people that are polarized, but our politicians and the online content that is polarized. And that the uh, sort of the cordon sanitaire of accept acceptable speech and initiatives, even of five years ago, that used to be an uncrossable line, needs to be reestablished to push far-right extremism back into the fringes. And we believe that social media has played a pivotal role in the collapse of that, that line that people used to not cross. Um, our work combating online religious hate has focused largely on anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic content in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, this hate speech and the conspiracy theories, like was mentioned earlier, the Great Replacement, which is both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim, is often pushed by neo-Nazi and other hate groups online. It makes its way into the mainstream political door, uh, discourse, um, ultimately resulting in a rollback of rights for multiple communities, and then of course an increase in hate incidents. Um, and within that, we've also focused on how hateful political speech and how politicians globally 
are impacting the growth of this um, hate online hate speech and how the tech companies refuse outright refuse to address the problem in some cases. Politicians are given exceptions to the rules, all the of the community standards. And um, in one of our reports, we documented how Facebook um, actually purposely helped these politicians in their campaigns, in messaging, and to get them elected. Um, some of these the examples are names that you've all heard, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Builders in uh, the Netherlands, Jamor in France, and then, of course, countless U.S. politicians, and all of them use uh, the idea, first, they're all anti-Muslim, rabidly so, and they blame um, refugees for a breakdown of the their their own country's societies. Um, for example, uh, you may have heard of Rasmus Paladin out of Denmark, who is a um, MP there and is known for having Koran burnings um, in front of the embassies. For example, he recently went to Sweden and burned a Koran in front of the Turkish embassy, which caused an international incident. Um, the United States, Turkey, and Sweden all issued travel warnings and um, encourage their citizens not to go to Sweden. It's impacting Sweden's ability to get into NATO now. And while there is some legal action being taken against him, all of his content, the the videos of him burning the Koran, the horribly offensive things that he's saying are all readily available on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and uh the companies have decided not to address it. Um, this is, in our view, it is um, irresponsible, of course, and is purposeful. Um, another situation is where Facebook has been told year after year after year, violent event after violent event, undermining of democracies about how anti-Muslim hate is spreading on its platform. Um, again, with a refusal to adequately address it, ending up with situations like Myanmar and the oppression of the Uyghurs. Um, and all of that said, because this is a global issue, we also try to get them to address these issues in non-English languages. Um, this is a global issue, and most of the world does not speak English, and that is where most of the AI and trust and safety um outfits uh, um, focus their attention. So as illustrated by everybody here today, the online weaponization of religious minorities is a key driver of online hate speech globally, which results in violence impacting us all. And we believe that the tech companies must accept the responsibility to protect people and democracy in accordance with the power that they have across the world. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Wendy. We'll now have about 10 minutes of questions and discussion amongst the panelists themselves. Jennifer, I will begin with yourself as the first speaker in our group. You mentioned that Jews are make up a very small percentage of Canada's population, only about 1%, and yet account for perhaps the majority of religiously motivated hate crimes. In addition to being a small community, Jews in Canada 
our very old community, there have been Jews in our country since at least 1749. So with that in mind, my question for you is, as we consider the ways in which old hatreds interact with new technologies, why do you think religiously motivated hatred has proven to be so persistent, even as the importance of religion in society appears to be declining? And what lessons do you think from over its long, the long history of Judaism in Canada might be instructive to other faith communities and to the new challenges of new technologies? Uh, thank you for, for this question. Um, so online hate is spreading faster than ever before. And too often, you know, what starts with online radicalization turns into real world violence. Um, and as you know, Canadians spend more and more time on social media, online hate poses a serious growing threat. Um, and, and the use of social media has become a core component uh, of our lives. Uh, and increasingly, organizations and individuals fueled by hate are using popular platforms uh, to spread their toxic ideas and recruit followers uh, who will promote uh, their hatred. Uh, we've had um, multiple um, uh, incidents uh, and cases uh, across Canada uh, of attacks uh, against our community that that started um, that started online and that started uh, with radicalization uh, online. Um, there uh, was a recent uh, uh, incident actually in April uh, with regards to youth being radicalized uh, online. Uh, and um, actually uh, leading to uh, destruction and, and threats uh, of material of the of the Jewish community and attacks on Jewish institutions, uh, or there was also um, uh, the case of uh, Gabriel Soichapu who promoted um, uh, neo-Nazi. Uh, propaganda and ideas online. Uh, and uh, he actually had a trial here and was found guilty for willful promotion of hatred. Uh, but we also have, um, uh, you were talking about what can we learn, and we have uh, incidents that, a number of incidents that I've mentioned at the beginning in my opening statement that happened uh, in the United States. Um, I'll give you the example of uh, the kosher grocery store in Jersey City. Um, in uh, so, two two assailants uh, fatally shot a police officer and three civilians in a kosher uh, market uh, in Jersey City in December 2019. Uh, and the authorities they are called that an act of domestic uh, terrorism. Um, and the social uh, media posts tied to the suspected uh, uh, person of committing this, the, the shooter, basically, uh, David Anderson, pushed anti-Semitic conspiracies uh, online. And uh, a comment on a post link to, to Anderson talked about the belief that Jews were using the police to further a violent agenda uh, against black people. And uh, the investigation also uncovered social media posts by, by him, by the shooter, uh, in which he called Jewish people uh, imposters who inhabited synagogues of Satan. Um, but, you know, 
we we have learned uh, from these types of incidents the importance of you know securing uh, our 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 institutions and also developing multi-pronged approach towards awareness of online hate and the importance of education and the importance of strong legislation at the same time. Uh, so I think um, we need to have all these uh, measures and multi-pronged approach put together uh, to, to fight this hatred that, that affects us all. Thank you, Emmanuel. Amira, I'll pass on to you now. You are, well, you are unique for many reasons, but on our panel, you are unique because as Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia, you are an officer of the Crown. And I wanted to pick up on the on your observation about Canada's ranking in the international system. You said that of G7 states, Canada has the highest number of of recorded Islamophobic um, incidents. That's really striking to me, not just because it grates against our perception of ourselves as Canadians, but also because Canada has far and away the smallest population of all the G7 states and is the only G7 state that has multiculturalism as officially official state policy. So I have to ask you the obvious question. With that in mind, why is it that Islamophobia has found such a large home in Canada as compared to our peers in the international system? Thanks for the question, Akash. So uh, for clarity, um, it's the highest number of deadly attacks. So the, num- the highest number of um, Muslims who have been killed um, in hate attacks in, of the G7. Um, and certainly it's of, of great concern. Um, Muslims make up 4% of the population, about 1.8 million uh, Muslims call Canada home. Um, and certainly, as you said, uh, Canada does pride itself on being a pluralistic country, a country that, um, you know, consists of people from all backgrounds and um, ethnicities, races, etc. Uh, and so f- certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who have continuously believed that Canada should be a place where people are able to freely practice their faith beliefs or not, you know, identify however they want to be and, and contribute freely as they wish uh, in this country. So you're absolutely right. It is of great concern to see uh, the fact that our communities have been targeted uh, in such deadly ways. Um, and even beyond that, the regular, um, I don't say regular, I don't, I don't want to normalize it, but the various types of incidents and attacks that, you know, uh, will happen at places of worship, at mosques, what we just um, marked Ramadan, where there were several incidents at various mosques across the country with attacks and vandalism, etc. And as I mentioned, we've had attacks on visible Muslim women, in fact, black Muslim women in particular at one point and and continuously have been targeted and specifically um, experiencing Islamophobic hate. And so I I don't have a why this is happening. Um, You know, I don't, I wish I wish we had the why. We can, of course, point to factors in which, you know, um, uh, my fellow panelists have talked about it. You know, uh, Louis talked about, for instance, you know, debates around immigration. I think Wendy, uh, Emmanuel, and Jennifer all talked about uh, the different political issues that may rise from time to time where you have particular communities that are singled out. Uh, we know, for instance, that the attack uh, in um, in Quebec City, that the uh, that the sh- that the killer, um, you know, was reacting to um, the 
quote-unquote Muslim ban in the United States that Donald Trump had just instituted that same weekend and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeting uh, sort of an inclusive message that he says was sort of what um, pushed him to uh, do uh, you know, take that terrorist action that he did. Um, and so certainly we have a, a variety of factors and the online spaces are sadly where people are able to find common cause where, you know, um, people who have been watching, you know, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism or Islamophobia in this country can say, you know, 30 years ago, you know, people would pass around pamphlets on the street corner and, and really how many people could they reach? Whereas now, of course, the magnitude of, of these narratives are, are just, you know, beyond our imagination. In fact, you know, and I, and I want to sort of pull a few, you know, a few other statistics um, that I think, again, will sort of cause many of our Canadian uh, viewers of this uh, of this panel some pause. You know, we've actually seen in this country um, some of the the uh, the largest numbers of perpetrators accused of hate crimes um, have been between the ages of 12 and 17. So mm -hmm. Statistics Canada at one point looked at a 10 year range and found that 23 percent of those accused were uh, boys, 86% um, uh, of them, uh, between those ages, 12 and 17, which really begs the question what's happening among young people. Sometimes people sort of mistakenly assume that these attitudes maybe are held by those with older prejudices and whatnot, but yet Media Smarts, a, a media organization uh, uh, that tries to promote media literacy among young people, actually did a survey um, and found that there are many online environments that are popular, for instance, with adolescent boys in Canada that have fairly high, quote, baseline levels of racism, sexism and homophobia. So, again, going back to, I think, what everyone on the panel is really saying um, is that there there is this phenomenon that's impacting right across um, our society, young and older people. Um, and the platforms, we've already heard about the platforms, you know, um, potentially not only um, allowing some of these very hateful narratives to persist, um, but also the fact that, you know, as we heard from whistleblower Francis Hogan from Facebook, you know, some of the previous algorithm, algorithms, we hope that they've been rectified, but would actually provide um, further um, attention and push out content that was making people angry or, you know, creating that type of divisiveness and, and res divisive response. And so, you know, certainly holding platforms accountable because we see that when platforms take action, you know, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network has documented this, where you may have a YouTube influencer promoting very hateful views removed from that type of mainstream platform, very small numbers of their followers will follow them onto lesser known platforms. And so that really can, in fact, help ensure that the influence of um, those who are promoting uh, these dangerous and potentially deadly narratives are addressed. And um, again, going back to the statistics, you know, 72% of Canadians um, say that they have been exposed to more hate speech, harassments, and false information just these past few years. And this is from a survey of online harms in Canada that was just released this past March by uh, the Leadership Lab, now known as the DAIS, at the Toronto Metropolitan University. So, you know, don't want to take too much more time, uh, but, but just to underscore um, that the situation remains very critical. Um, and 
as I said, there is uh, those advocates who are continuously looking to the federal government to take action on uh, online safety. And we have heard that the government is working on that, um, but certainly ensuring that there's regulation of these spaces um, to address the danger of such uh, hate speech to our uh, well-being is, is addressed. Thank you, Amira. Um, I'll ask Louis, you spoke of the work of the Center for Prevention and Radicalization Leading to Violence, primarily in Quebec. Quebec, along with Nunavut, are unique or um, alone in as members of our federation, where a majority of the populations are linguistic minorities in our country. My question for you is, has that status, that social awareness, that in Quebec, the province's majority is a minority within Canada and a very small minority with North America, has that shaped and or influenced the way the political class in Quebec and the majority of the population in Quebec has itself seen minorities within that province? Has it made them more or less sympathetic? And does it does that provide lessons or a different perspective on the question of the way religious minorities are perceived across Canada? Uh, thank you. This, is, this might be a, a bit of a delicate question. Um, Quebec is is a distinct society in many ways uh, in North America, and the the ways debates are made here are different than uh, what what we see elsewhere in the country. Um, and yes, the the feeling of being like a minority that could disappear uh, is certainly something that, that, that is in, in a lot of people's mind and uh, hate motivated actors know that and they tend to play on that register uh, to uh, make multiculturalism as a form of a scarecrow uh, and, and to mobilize against minorities that uh, so the Emmanuel uh, mentioned the Great Replacement Theory uh, that the federal government would be uh, planning to 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 drown the, the French Canadian population uh, with immigration. So so this is a bit of the background where uh, we 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 need to work, uh, which is not to say that uh, Quebec is more hateful or more racist than other uh, other places uh, is that the debates are made uh, are, are a bit different and that that identity question uh, certainly plays into uh, in, into the field um, uh, and also that prevention efforts that are international or, or pan-canadian often tend to to not understand the cultural context of uh, of Quebec, uh, uh, which caused uh, some rejection from from part of the population. So, so th these are contexts where these are contextual factors that need to be uh, taken into account if we do prevention in Quebec. That's why uh, local based uh, organizations are uh, really crucial to. Uh, to lead that uh, that prevention efforts. Thank you, Louis. Um, Jennifer, you spoke to the relative effectiveness of the spread of hatred online 
to the extent that it taps into existing fears and insecurities within the populations. That is to say that hate can spread quickly online, not because it is a new phenomenon online, but because it catalyzes existing trends within society. I suppose my question for you then is, if that's the case, why is it that narratives of hate have proven so virulent and countervailing narratives of inclusion and, um, and pluralism appear not to have spread so quickly? We've heard many people on, on our discussions talk about the power of online communications to accelerate hatred. Why is it not accelerating inclusion to the same extent? Well, thank you so much for that fascinating question. Studies have shown from various social media platforms that negative messages, messages of hate, in fact, spread, spread far quicker. They're far more viral in nature than positive messages of, say, inclusion uh, and so on. And often those messages of inclusion typically have more nuance behind them, as if there's a particular soundbite or the thing that a, a politician, an influencer has said, that really grabs their attention, and maybe it's disinformation, maybe it's a very targeted clip, that will often have far more more viral spread than some of these more nuanced and nonetheless important messages. And that's what makes countering speech is so important that it's sustained on these platforms and to keep giving it a high profile. However, there is a particular challenge that comes with monitoring some of these platforms insofar as algorithms might not be able to delineate between hate speech and speech that is countering the hate speech. And so when we think about content moderation, we also need to uh, engage digital and social media companies effectively so that we have that more nuanced approach and we, we do have the appropriate space for the targeted communities to have these conversations and to develop effective counter speech. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, finally, Wendy, you talked about the work of the Center for for the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism being based in the United States, but having a global having global ambitions and a and kindling a, a global mandate. There's no denying that the United States, as the home of most of the large global social media platforms, is the one country and therefore the one society whose decisions tend to ripple the most across across our world. With that in mind, do you have thoughts about the kinds of measures that you would like to see the government of the United States take and governments in other countries to try to bring greater democratic oversight and democratic restraint to the actions of, of these platforms? Emmanuel said to us at her opening remarks that 84% of anti-Semitic posts go untouched on social media platforms. One of our questioners has said that 99% of hate speech posted by Twitter blue, blue users are left up. And indeed, under the national laws of the United States, Section 230 absolves social media platforms of any liability for any material other than criminal material that is posted online by their users. What would you like to see the government of the United States do to try to bring some accountability to this, uh, to match the levels of freedom that we are seeing? And what do you think governments and societies in other countries ought to do? Thank you for that question. It, it, that is a complicated situation. The United States, as you said, you know, is the home of these companies. It's also sort of what has created the culture of these companies. And yet we do not have any mechanism 
to force the companies to do what they should do. All we have is public pressure. And so what what I would like to see done is is the is legislation in the in the spheres where we where our government can legislate on privacy and on uh, exploitation of children and on criminal or the the planning of criminal activity online. Some of those things could possibly be legislated, but given the situation and that the fact that it is not likely to change. We are currently relying on public pressure from our elected officials, um, corporations, civil society, the general public to encourage or persuade or, or pressure the companies to do what's right. And at this point, what we want them to do is to follow their own rules. Because the truth is, is that all of the companies with except that Twitter is certainly backsliding. Um, the main of the main companies have policies sufficient to address online hate speech. It is it always comes down to the enforcement. And I think Jennifer mentioned the algorithms. And uh, one other thing about the algorithms is that they learn to promote that negative content, as she mentioned. And so th- those are things that that can be done if they would just do it. And they will not in the United States. Right now, the DSA, which is going into the Digital Services Act and uh, the EU is going to into effect in, um, in August. We hope that it will be worth the company's times um, to, as they begin to follow the rules in the DSA, as they begin to implement it with across their um, across the EU countries that they will at least do the bare minimum in other countries. I have little hope that that will happen because of the language issue. So I didn't, I haven't actually, I, I can tell you what, what I wish that our government would do. They, they cannot do it because it's so polarized, but there isn't a good answer. Um, right. So I think that it is, that is why it's such a global issue. Thank you very much, Wendy. And I think that's an appropriate note on which to wrap up the idea that while legislation and regulation have important roles to play, the most important role is the setting of social norms and the activism of ordinary people. Um, We've all talked about the pernicious speed with which hatred spreads online against religious minorities and the extent to which online communication provides fuel to the fire of hatred as well as a medium for that hatred to spread. But I, at least for my own part, remain something of a pathological optimist. I do think that the vast majority of people across the world are fundamentally decent human beings, even though we are often sometimes trapped in indecent circumstances. But it does sound to me as if all of you have agreed that while there are many approaches to addressing the spread of hatred online, one thing that is common in all societies and all places is that the majority of us who have no track or trade with hatred have an ethical obligation to speak up, to counter the hatred that's coming through online channels and to demonstrate to ourselves and to the world that we are the many and they are the few. I would like to very much thank all of our panelists who have joined us today. Um, Again, Emmanuel Amar, Director of Policy and Research for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs in Quebec. Louis Odette Gosselin, 
the scientific and strategic director at the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, Amira El-Gawabi, Canada's Special Representative on Combating Islamophobia, Jennifer Trigel, Senior Legal Advisor for the Freedom of Religion or Belief and Equality Project at the University of Essex, and Wendy Veer, Co-Founder and President of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. And before I pass it back to our colleagues, I do, of course, want to give a special thank you to Lauren Salem, the project leader at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, as well as the Institute itself and Concordia University in which they are it is situated for calling this panel together, organizing it, putting in the enormous amount of work that happens in the weeks and months beforehand to make it possible. So thank you, Lauren, and thank you to, to Migs. Thank you so much, Akash, for your excellent moderation. Again, thank you to all of our panelists for being here. If you're interested in learning more about the Digital Peace Project or our other upcoming events, please go to the MIGS website, Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you again. Bye.